Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. We have with us tonight another special guest. We have Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Uh, Glenn is the history professor at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And he's also into podcasting. He has the Theology Pugcast opposite C.R. Wiley and Dr. Thomas Price. He is also an author, and I wanted to show him. I own his books. I got the, uh, we have the Reformation for Armchair Theologians, and also Why You Think the Way You Do, and his latest work, Slaying Leviathan, which I just finished recently and is a great book. So, Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for having me. I have one correction. I am a history professor at Central Connecticut State University. Okay. Uh, I have, uh, uh, I retired from that and I'm now working with uh, Dr. Ken Bell at Reflections Ministries. Okay, good to know. Thank you. Well, we are really happy to have you here. Um, and we'd like to start with you giving us kind of a history of an overview of critical race theory. It seems to be this idea that has really taken root in our culture. We see it everywhere. We see it in the workplace. We see it on social media um, and we're even seeing it in the church. So if you could give us just kind of an introduction to what is it and how did it come to be? Okay. Well, first, I would actually argue that referring to it as critical race theory is a little bit of a mistake right from the start. What we're really dealing with is a broader area called critical theory, of which critical race theory is a subsection. And by talking about critical race theory, we can often miss the bigger picture of what's going on. And it also opens us up to uh, criticism, uh, hopefully in a bit. Uh, Critical theory really begins in a lot of ways with a reaction uh, among Marxists in the 1930s, um, where they were wondering why the proletariat revolution never happened. And they concluded that the problem wasn't really so much economic class as ideology that the dominant ideology of the bourgeoisie, the the capitalist classes, had seeped down into the oppressed classes to such a degree that they didn't even realize they were oppressed. So the trick then was to, through a, a combination of working with workers and intellectuals, to raise the awareness of oppression of various oppressed groups in society so that they would rise up and uh, overthrow the powers that be. Now, this idea was picked up by uh, an organization called the Frankfurt School, uh, technically the Institute for Social Research, which started at Frankfurt University. 
even when Hitler came to power and then was invited to Columbia University where it really settled in. And they were the ones who really ended up um, developing and pushing the ideas that we see in, uh, in Antonio Gramsci, the guy who came up with the, this idea that it's ideology. And as a result, they began working to, well, anybody who was alive in the 60s and 70s, um, which includes me, will recognize some of these terms. They talked about people having a false consciousness. They weren't oppression. So the object then was to raise their consciousness, to make them aware of their oppression. And then this would ultimately lead to a kind of class consciousness as all the various depressed groups joined together to try to take down the, the system. Okay. Now, the oppressed groups, uh, interestingly enough, are moving away from economic groups. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, Blacks uh, in the civil rights movement. You know, they're, they're co-opting some of that. It's women in the fe- feminist movement. It moves into LGBT stuff. It's uh, Latinos, it's various ethnic groups, things like that. So, but not so much white coal miners in Appalachia. They're not really interested in them. Yeah. It's all of these other groups that are out there. So the, the, uh, some, uh, some elements of the feminist movement, some of the more radical elements of the civil rights movement, um, the, uh, uh, the growth of LGBT, all of these things. And actually, interestingly enough, environmentalism in the sort of dark green variety of it, because the earth then becomes an oppressed class. Um, All of these different groups sort of coalesce and work together, um, cooperate in an effort to undermine the system. Okay. Now, their tactics really involve, I would argue, two principal areas. Uh, one of them is what uh, a guy named Rudy Dutschke called the long march through the institutions. It's a term that was picked up by Herbert Marcuse um, in his book in 1972, uh, Counter-Revolution and, and Reform or something like that. Um, anyway, the idea here is that they would infiltrate the institutions that control the levers of culture. Uh, in Marcuse's case, he was particularly interested in media. Another member of the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, argued for education and government. So the idea is that we're going to infiltrate these institutions, gradually turning them, as they put it, into Marxist entities um, with the goal then of subverting the system from within. Okay, Mm -hmm. And then by these things shaping the culture, it will move it in the direction they want it to which, as as, uh, uh, Marcuse put it, uh, universal egalitarianism. Now, so that's one set of roots. The second set of roots uh, actually also comes from the Frankfurt School, uh, which argued that in order for this to happen, the family is the fundamental unit of bourgeois society. So what we need to do is to take out the family. And this is the ideological root behind the sexual revolution. Most people who are engaged in sexual revolution are completely unaware of this, 
but this is really the ideological root for it. It is a self-conscious attempt to undermine the natural family by eliminating um, sexual taboos and any kind of sexual regulation at all. So that then is going to feed into the sexual revolution. It's going to feed into LGBT. It's going to feed into all of those different things. Now, this turn, this is all critical theory. And this is the big package that we're really dealing with now. When we talk about critical race theory, that is correctly, critics will say, you know, it isn't taught in schools. It's a, it's a legal theory. In the technical sense, that's correct. Critical race theory is a theory of law that argues that American law at its root is racist. Okay. And it's something, it's part of a broader field called critical legal studies. And in a technical sense, that's true. But the way critical race theory gets translated down on a popular level with people like Ibram Kendi or Robin DiAngelo, um, it actually is all of the other aspects of critical theory we've talked about. So the criticism that critical race theory is not being taught in schools is correct in the technical sense of the word. However, the phrase is used in a much broader sense as a a new version of critical theory, which I prefer to talk about critical theory for that reason, rather than critical race theory, because it's actually a much bigger program. You know, when you look at Ibram Kendi, he says, basically, you can't be a capitalist and an anti-racist. You know, it's, it's straight Marxism. I mean, it's, it's really coming straight from that root. Mm-hmm. Now, Kendi, 20000 for a speech. So one wonders about his, his anti-capitalist commitments. Right. However, um, you know, that in a lot of ways, statements like that give a game. You know, they really point to the roots of it. And they point to the fact that it really isn't about race. Mm -hmm. About a whole lot more than that. Yeah. Why do you think the church, um, particularly Big Eva, local pastors, it seems like they have fallen prey to this concept, to to this theory. And we've become, uh, as believers in our churches, indoctrinated with this anti-gospel, for lack of a better word, approach. Um, yeah, the, the, reason, the reason is that it's a Christian heresy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, when you look at non-Christian cultures, cultures that are not shaped by Judaism or Christianity, what you find is the attitude that might makes right. It's as simple as that. If you're oppressed, it's because you deserve it. It's because you're weak. The powerful are the ones who ought to rule. Um, there's a great example from the Peloponnesian War where the Athenians attacked a non-belligerent island. And when they protested this, the Athenians' reply was, the strong do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. They slaughtered all the males on the island and sold the children into slavery. And that was normal practice. I mean, this is, this is the way the world was before Christianity. Christianity comes along, and, and, and if, if you want to pull this, by the way, read the book Dominion by um, uh, Tom Holland. Uh, he talks about the fact that, yeah, as an atheist, he talks about the fact that, that the ancient world is really foreign to him as a historian. And the reason is because Christianity has so shaped the way we think 
that it's really hard for a modern person to actually get into the minds of people in the ancient world because they did not value the weak. They did not see an, any moral status in people who were who were, were weak. They were simply inferior and they deserved what they got. Mm-hmm. Christianity says, no, people are made in the image of God. And that gives every individual unique dignity and unique worth, which means that the oppressed are every bit as good as their oppressors. And they have rights that need to be respected and honored. And so what happens in critical theory is they create this idea of oppressed peoples, some of which has legitimate, there's legitimate points to be made here. Not all of it is is nonsense. But they take that and they, they absolutize it in a way that makes oppression the only sin and the oppressed always innocent. Mm-hmm. This, now that's a long way of getting to your question. The reason why this appeals to so many people in churches is we recognize the fact that oppression is sin. Mm-hmm. And although historic Christianity has the resources to deal with problems of oppression, we have ignored our history for so long that we've forgotten that those answers are there. And as a result, they accept the framing of the issue of oppression by people who are actually stridently anti-Christian. But because of the fact that oppression is sin, and this, this provides them with really the only thing they have to think it through, they adopt it. Mm. Yeah, it's so it's so disconcerting, especially when you have uh, names that we can obviously say on the show that we both know of these particular leaders or pastors. And yet these guys have an understanding of the word, but they've now adopted these theories and they're somehow trying to um, connect them together It, right. it does it, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor male nor female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. It seems like this is, this is like you said earlier, it's a heresy. Right. And, and the fact is that the categories that they work with um, are not categories that are biblical. And you can't get biblical solutions using non-biblical categories. So race, for example, is not a biblical category. Right. Um, it is a social reality that we need to deal with. And actually, the critical theory people are correct on this. Race is a social construct. It really is. I mean, there's no, there's no real biological foundation for race. Mm-hmm. So they've got that right. Um, and we, we do need to deal with the social implications of race. But we need to do it using biblical categories not the least of which is the acknowledgement that although race may be a social reality, it isn't an absolute reality. It's not a reality to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, intersectionality and how that fits into all of this? Yeah. I I sort of buried intersectionality in my discussion of critical theory. Um, I didn't use the word, but it's right there. Um, Again, the idea in intersectionality is, first of all, all oppression is interconnected. So if you're oppressed, 
uh, because you're black, it's connected to being oppressed as a woman, it's connected to being oppressed as LGBT, and so on. They're all basically elements of the same system of oppression. Now, this has got a couple of implications. First of all, um, they stack. Okay, so a black male is oppressed because he's black, but he's an oppressor because he's male. Everybody in all these categories, you're either oppressor or oppressed. So a black male is oppressed because he's black, an oppressor because he's male. A black woman is oppressed because she's black and oppressed because she's a woman. So she's got an extra category of oppression there. But if she's heterosexual, she's in an oppressor category there. However, a black lesbian is oppressed in all of these different areas. Okay, so now that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, as I said before, oppression is the only sin. And being oppressed makes you innocent in that area. Um, But the other part of it is everything in this this system is a zero-sum game. Uh, What that means is in order for one person to go to advance, another person has to fall behind. Now, since, uh, you know, the idea here is that whites have power because they've taken it away from people of color. Men have power because they've taken it away from women. Heterosexuals have power because they've taken it away from LGBTs and so on. Um, Now, the... Everything is a zero-sum game, and that includes moral status. As an oppressor, you lose moral status, but because it's a zero-sum game, the oppressed gain moral status. If you lose, somebody else has to gain. So in the oppressor categories, you lose moral status. The oppressed categories, you gain moral status. The more oppressed categories you can be in, the more status you have and the more right to speak you have. So there is a great deal of of, um, credit, a great deal of capital to be gained, if I can use that word here, Mm -hmm. capital to be gained by being in in these various suppressed categories. Now, the other part of it is an element of epistemology. That's the branch of philosophy dealing with knowledge. This is called standpoint theory. Standpoint theory says that the, everything you think you know is, none of it is objective. There is no such thing as objective knowledge. Everything you think you know comes from your intersectional categories. Uh, in a lot of ways, you are not an individual, nor are you a representative of the human race as a whole. What you are is a representative of the specific set of intersectional categories you fit into. That determines everything about you. It determines how you think. It determines what qualifies as knowledge to you, what qualifies as facts, all of these kinds of things. So that's another implication of intersectionality that's rarely discussed. Um, And it's actually a very convenient one because what it means is that since uh, facts, figures, statistics, uh, the idea of objectivity, all of these things are characteristics as they define it of whiteness, none of these can be used to counter a point being made from a person of color who's speaking from their particular standpoint. Theirs is just as valid as yours. So this is a very convenient way of making an argument and delegitimizing any counter arguments that may be offered. 
So what do we do with this? How do we declare the truth um, even in the midst of this? What does that look like? Um, I would say that the first step is you, you're, you're not going to be able to simply declare the truth. You just have to, you know, uh, th there's, there's a time and a place to do it, certainly. Uh, but you are not likely to convince someone who has bought into critical theory by simply making arguments or something like that, because they've got a very convenient way of dismissing them. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think, though, that the first step has to be building relationships. Mm -hmm. um, if you build relationships of trust with people, uh, you have a much better chance of allowing, of, of creating a situation where they will be willing to listen to you and to at least consider what you're saying. Now, there's no guarantee of this. I know families that, that had seemed to be close that completely fell apart because one person disagreed with uh, critical theory. And that person was then yeah, it, it kicked out of the family. They were, they were excised from the group. Yeah. Wow. Um, or the entire family was cut off from an individual who accepted critical theory. So that does happen. There's no guarantee that this is going to work. But it's the only way that I can see that we can take any kind of action that is likely to move the dial a little bit toward a more, well, frankly, sane direction. Um, it's all, you know, the relationships are absolutely key here. And what that means more than anything else is you've got to listen more than you speak. Yeah. Do you, do you think the West is too steeped into this? Do you think that we've gone sort of too far? Or do you think that some of these things can be changed? Obviously, I think revival and reformation is key. But right. do you think yeah. this is something that and I'll probably ask this question again in a little bit regarding resistance theory, uh, re resistance theory. But ha ha have we have we gone too far in this? Okay, well, first of all, there, another thing that I probably should have led with in terms of how do we deal with this is prayer. Uh, because ultimately, this is the, the people who, who accept critical theory are not our enemy. The enemy is our enemy. Right. Um, they, are, they are victims of bad ideas. They're actually, I, the analogy I use is that uh, the Stockholm Syndrome. You know, they're people who've been captured by the enemy who's then flipped them so that they are now on the side of the enemy, but they think that's the right side to be on. So they're the people we need to be rescuing. We can't think of them as enemies, which is why ships and things like that are so important. But God has also provided us with weapons for our warfare against the enemy, one of the most important and ignored of which is prayer. When you go through the armor of God passage, when you get to the end of it, what most people always stop, you know, um, at, at, after the image ends. But in the next two verses, Paul uses words referring to prayer at least four times. So put on all this armor and pray, 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 and pray. <laughs> that's, you know, so there, there's a clear emphasis on that, which we typically ignore. So yeah. that's really important. And that leads into your reformation and revival thing. Mm -hmm. I, if you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have been a lot more pessimistic pessimistic than I am now. 
in terms of the direction of American culture, largely because there have been there's been a this is one of the blessings of COVID. <laughs> there the, are the, there are a few, right? Ironically, there are a few. The, the lockdowns have exposed what's going on in the school systems, mm-hmm. and it has made the indoctrination that is happening much much more obvious and much much more more clear to everybody. And as a result, it is producing a backlash. And my hope is that the backlash, there, there are good and bad things about the backlash. Some of it is, is being done in a way that I think is less than helpful. But it is, I think, going to slow the progress of this. Mm-hmm. And actually, I see good signs that some of it is being reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there are some positive indications out there. I think there's reason for hope. But once again, everything is going to hinge ultimately on the fact that, um, you know, um, uh, we need a revival. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know when this was, maybe a few months ago, you were doing an interview with someone. I've, I've seen several of your interviews um, and the transgenderism talk got brought up. And mm-hmm. one of the things you said that historically, this is, this is unprecedented in, yeah. in, in, in history. We've never seen a civilization that is so enamored and so gone so far astray in a world of confusion regarding gender. Um, mm-hmm. Can, can you expound a little bit on maybe why you think we're in this weird, quasi-crazy sense of we don't know, we can't decide between male and female, and there's gender fluidity and 52 or 53 genders and such? Like, I realize historically there's nothing precedented that we can look back at, but what is your take on yeah. this? Yeah, I, I think that that what has happened, and this this ties in with with uh, standpoint theory and a number of other things. If there is no such thing as objectivity, okay, if there is no such thing as objectivity, there is no objective definition of male or female. There is no objective definition of man or woman. Mm-hmm. And if everything is a matter of standpoint, if everything is ultimately subjective, then my subjectivity, whatever I happen to feel like subjectively at the moment, is my truth. Mm-hmm. Because there is no, one of the implications of standpoint theory is there is no transpersonal truth. There mm-hmm. is no truth that crosses intersectional lines. So if um, I have to, you know, th- th- whatever is my truth is my truth, and I can go forward with that. Now, remember, the other part of this is that you gain moral category from being in a victim status. And transgenders right now are the epitome, the peak of victim status. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of cred for being transgender. And this is one of the reasons why I think we're seeing it emerge as a social contagion. Where do you think that came from, though? Because just if we were talking 10 years ago, we would have said these particular people have a problem, most likely a mental problem. This is this is relatively new. So 
why did this totally flip? Is it because of the construct of, of, uh, of, of critical theory, essentially? That this I think, yeah, I think a lot of it really revolves around critical theory, but there's another element that ties in with this going back for the, you, any of you who listen to the podcast, going back to Rousseau um, and maybe before, um, that basically ma- makes the argument, I think um, it's been referred to as psychological man, um, that basically says that that who you are is who you are on the inside. You know, it's a matter of, of what, what's authentic about you. The word authentic is really big in this. What's authentic about you is what you are on the inside. And you, your, 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 feel, your sentiment, as they used to call it, your feelings, all of these kinds of things. Uh, it goes from Rousseau through some of the romantics, um, and it gets put in scientific guise by Freud. And it turns out that Freud, along with Marx, is one of two of the big influences in the Frankfurt School near foreign critical theory. But this idea of authenticity, this idea of being true to yourself, this idea of uh, what's really most important about you isn't what you are on the outside, it's what you are on the inside. Uh, you know, all of these kinds of ideas have been developing over time. And while they were never really applied to sex, to gender, Mm -hmm. um, given the obsession with sex coming out of the sexual revolution, uh, given the fact that almost every sense that the word freedom is used has ultimately something to do with what uh, some people I know refer to as the pelvic issues, it was, you know, I wouldn't have actually expected it, but it makes perfect sense that transgenderism is going to emerge out of this morass. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was in Mongolia um, uh, back in 2013, and absolutely none of the LGBT stuff was present in Mongolia, at least at that time. I don't know about now. And the reason is they have something like 100 herd animals per person in Mongolia. It's a herding culture. Mm-hmm. They kind of understand how this works. <laughs> right. So unless there's revival and reformation, do you have like any projection of where does this lead? Like what is, is there an end of this? Like all of these ideas that are obviously... Um, in opposition even to our biology, like where, do, where does this lead? Um, that, uh, you know, I, as a historian, I'm much better at things that happened in the past than things that are going to happen in the future. But, um, okay, think about a pendulum. Everybody always says, you know, all right, we've got a, we've got a big swing to the left. It's going to swing further to the right. You know, we're going to, we're gonna, it's going to come back. Um, that doesn't really work for two reasons. Uh, first of all, something called the Overton window. Uh, the Overton window is the range of thought that is considered acceptable in a culture. Okay. Now, the problem is the left has been pushing the Overton window further and further to the left. And ideas on the right, therefore, are considered um, off, the, you know, off, off the reservation. You can't really do that. Okay. 
Um, actually, this brings up something else. I mentioned two tactics that were used by the, the, um, uh, the new left, the Frankfurt School. The second one is something called repressive tolerance. Mm. Repressive tolerance means you tolerate ideas from the left, but not the right. <laughs> this is now this includes indoctrination. It includes education. It even includes violence. So look at the difference in the reactions between the riots on Antifa and Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Which one is being prosecuted? Okay. You were t- we're tolerating the left, but not the right, even in terms of violence. Now, so this push to the left has been going on relentlessly for so long that the Overton window has moved really far to the left. So that things that would have been considered perfectly normal and acceptable 20 years ago are now off the table. Heck, when Obama was elected, he said he believed marriage was between one man and one woman. Right. You can no longer say that. The Overton window has been pushed that far. Mm. The second thing that we have to take into account is that pendulums don't always swing back. Sometimes they go flying out into the weeds. (laughs) Um, And the danger right now is that we fly, things fly out into the weeds. Um, I think though that we are increasingly seeing, you know, it's it's almost a hackneyed thing at this point. We're seeing growing polarization in America. Mm -hmm. And Sooner or later, barring divine intervention, people are going to be put into a situation where they're going to have to pick sides. Mm -hmm. And there's a significant part of the country not found on the coasts that are going to want to move in one direction rather than the other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll, they'll, they'll want to be hold on to more conservative values and things like that. Whereas the elites on the coast, Chicago, um, a few other areas are going to want to push to the left. And that creates a very, very dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in a recent talk, well, about a year ago, you talked about how the world is trying to re-enchant itself. And you've kind of touched on some of these things without using the word enchantment. But I was wondering if you maybe could give the definition or the etymology of enchantment you gave a breakdown of fight laugh feast i think a little over a year ago um and it was that talk was great uh so i was wondering if you could maybe break some of that down okay well the the key phrase here is really disenchantment Mm -hmm. and this was yeah that was articulated among others by max weber a german sociologist back in 1918 i think it was uh, where he said that the world had become disenchanted by which he meant that science, the Industrial Revolution, um, all of these things had eliminated mystery, uh, had eliminated really in a lot of ways the need for God, purpose, all of these kinds of things. So the world was left in this disenchanted state. Now, he hoped science would re-enchant it, but he was also afraid that you would find um, something like a Nietzschean Ubermensch come along and become a demagogue and pull the society along with them as a way of giving them meaning and value. Okay. Now, the, what I did at, at FLF was a, uh, a wordplay 
of the word enchantment. And I'll see if I can reconstruct it here. Um, <laughs> this in, isn't in, a test. <laughs> yeah, well, but but it's fun and I love playing with language. Good. Okay, good. Um, the word enchantment, the etymology of it literally means to sing into something. And this is a way of producing magic. In a lot of ways, disenchantment means the magic has gone from the world. Okay. Now, um, enchantment, um, we use it in other senses. I mean, when we use the word enchantment, you know, the original meaning has to do with magic. But we use it in other ways. We can talk about an enchanting evening or an enchanting young woman. And an enchanting young woman, of course, is a young woman who is, uh, who's got magic, who's cast a spell on you. <laughs> okay. Now, when we think of enchanting young women, uh, we might describe them as being glamorous. The word glamour is actually an old that means a spell. A glamour is a spell, typically an illusion. Okay. So we, we, even glamour has its connection to magic. And by the way, um, in order to achieve glamour, along with clothes, you need cosmetics. And cosmetics, actually, the word cosmetic comes from the word cosmos, the Greek word that refers to the, or, the ordered universe as a place of beauty. So cosmetics is a, play, uh, is a way of getting ordered beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, putting your face on, you know, that, that, that kind of idea. But going back to glamour for a moment, glamour is also connected to a word grammar. Actually, glamour and grammar are variants on the same root. And grammar or grammary uh, originally referred to um, any kind of knowledge, but particularly occult knowledge. So we're back in the realm of magic again. <laughs> um, and grammar is, uh, is itself a tool that is used in, well, casting spells, because spelling and grammar are closely related. Um, the word spell uh, comes from uh, the old German spielarm, which meant a discourse or a speech or something along those lines, but it gets connected into this idea of producing magic but we've also got it connected with word via spelling and grammar. Word, by the way, brings us to logos, logic, all of those kinds of concepts. Um, and of course, if you're going to do a spell, the way of doing it is via an incantation, which is for to sing into something. So we're back to enchantment. <laughs> Very well done. Okay. So what's the point of all of this? Um, aside from just the fact that I like playing with language. The point is that when the world gets disenchanted, every piece of this breaks. Mm -hmm. So we lose, for example, the idea of the cosmos as a place of ordered beauty. As a matter of fact, one of the places where disenchantment shows up first is in the art world where art is no longer meant to produce things of beauty. It's meant to produce things of, that are blatantly ugly, intended to shock, intended to disturb, those kinds of things. The idea of art for beauty is completely lost. The idea of beauty as an objective reality is completely lost in our world. Okay, So we lose that. 
um, we lose um, jumping, you know, jumping further down. We lose the idea of, well, again, the world as an ordered place. The world is increasingly seen as being chaotic and meaningless. And the fact that it is meaningless means we've also lost logos. And when we lose logos, when we lose meaning, it's not long before we also lose logic. So that you get standpoint theory. You know, and so on. Every step along the way of this, um, this of that, that I ran through in that word ramble, in enchantment, every step along the way is broken. Mm-hmm. So the point is, though, Weber was concerned about disenchantment. He was concerned about the loss of religion as a source of meaning and all of that. Um, the fact is we can't, I don't believe we can truly live this way. Mm-hmm. And as a result, people are looking for ways to re-enchant the world. They are looking for causes. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning, which is one of the appeals of critical theory. Mm-hmm. It provides a kind of, it provides a cause. It provides a, a, uh, a sense of meaning or purpose to you, which is, of course, fighting oppression. Uh, of course, the definition of oppression is constantly changing. The definition of racism is constantly changing. All of these different things. But, heck, you can keep up if you really want to. <laughs> and if you, if you have adopted this as your way of re-enchanting the world, you will. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other alternatives out there. Uh, one of the more obvious, if you think about it, is the rise in occult and paganism. Okay, That's another way of re-enchanting the world. Sometimes connected to critical theory, very often not, however. They tend to be interested in other kinds of things. And in some cases, when you're dealing with, for example, some versions of Norse paganism, it's blatantly on the other side. There are white supremacist heathens out there. Not all of them are, but but they do exist. There is, however, a proper way to re-enchant the world. And in fact, to talk about re-enchanting the world is really a bit of a mistake because the world has never really been disenchanted. There has always been meaning. There has always been purpose. There's always been a deeper significance to the world around us than we typically realize. And one of the great things about the gospel is if we actually understand it in its fullness, it points to the fact that the world is enchanted, that we do. Now, again, I'm using the word enchantment, not in the sense of magic, but in the sense that Weber used it, where where there's this idea of meaning, that there's an idea of purpose. There are all of these things that are out there and they're embedded in the very fabric of the universe that we're in. Um, This is something that the medievals got right and we get hopelessly wrong. Um, in In the Middle Ages, everything in the world pointed beyond itself to greater realities. The world itself pointed to God, pointed to the creator, pointed to spiritual and moral truth, all of these kinds of things. In our world, we have no meaning, we have facts. 
And in fact, if you were to bring a medieval thinker forward to today, he'd be really impressed with their technology. He'd be, I think he'd be really enamored with databases um, because of what medieval thinkers were, were very, very orderly. Mm -hmm. um, but what he would say at the end of the day is, you guys know an awful lot, but you understand nothing. Because understanding means taking what you know and figuring out what the deeper meanings are, wh wh where it goes. Um, again, to the medieval, the world was enchanted. Everything had meaning. Everything had purpose. Um, everything pointed beyond itself. Mm -hmm. That's good. Have you thought about uh, encapsulating all of this talk into book form? As far as like a, a word ramble with Dr. Glenn Sunshine? Well, I, 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 made, I, I have thought about doing something like that, but I haven't quite... Um, uh, I've got so many other writing projects. This one has not really uh, jumped to the top yet. Yeah. I think if people understood the background and the etymology of these words, like you so well display in your talk, that it's like, wow, it really causes you to think about all of the language, all of the words that we use today. Mm. It's really good. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that is... Uh, that if I do this, one of the things that I, I intend to do with it is a discussion of cathedrals. Mm. Because when you look at a Gothic cathedral, it's a great illustration of everything having meaning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, talk to us, if you will. This is another plug for your book, um, <laughs> which you didn't tell me to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Slang Leviathan. Um, Talk to us about resistance theory. Give us a brief history on resistance theory. And then let's talk about maybe some current issues as far as Christians on what we should potentially look at, how we should look at Romans 13, et cetera. Okay, so I would say that the place to begin with resistance theory is with Jesus. There's a real surprising thing for a Christian to say. <laughs> um, for some Christians. Yeah, so Jesus is asked... Um, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, Jesus's answer is show me the coin whose image is on it. By the way, that's a subtle reference to the second commandment. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to go there right now. But um, what, what he, he then says, okay, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Now, what that tells us is that there are some things that are legitimately Caesar's, but not everything is. Further, Caesar isn't the one who gets to decide what's his. God is the one who gets to decide what's his. So the question we need to ask constantly is what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God or what belongs to someone else? I mean, ultimately, everything is God's. But does the family, for example, have things that belong to it that are different from what the state has? You know, are there, are there other things, does the church, are there things that belong to the church that don't belong to the state? These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. Um, ultimately, uh, jumping ahead during the Middle Ages, you get this idea of unalienable rights. You actually find medieval theologians talking about the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to property. 
as rights that are God-given and therefore that the state cannot take away, at least not arbitrarily. Um, and in fact, you're not allowed even to relinquish these yourself. Um, thus, suicide is wrong because you don't have the right to take your life. It belongs to God. Okay, so when we get to the Reformation, we're faced with a situation where you've got a lot of Catholic authorities who are trying to suppress Protestantism and are even willing to go to war to make this happen. Um, the idea emerges there that um, there are times when it is legitimate to resist the government, um, contrary to a simplistic reading of Romans 13. But this resistance to the government has to be, first of all, against something that is really egregious. It's not just something you do for minor, minor faults. But secondly, it needs to be led by the lesser magistrates. Uh, lesser magistrates are people who are part of the government, but who are lowered down in the hierarchy. The reason being that Romans 13, when it talks about obeying the powers that be, those powers that be include the lesser magistrates. Now, this an example of this would be a governor who uh, refuses to enforce uh, a federal mandate or a sheriff who refuses to uh, enforce a governor's mandate. Uh, those kinds of things would be examples of lesser magistrate. So we get this idea of resistance there, but again, focus specifically on the lesser magistrate. When we next go to Calvin, there are a couple of key ideas with him that need to be brought in here. One of them is the idea that government must be based on the consent of the government. And the second is that the government has to be set up in the form of a covenant, because this is how God did it at Sinai. And if this is how God sets up government, it's how we should set up government. Now, these two ideas get combined in a, a couple of places, in France, for example, but particularly in England. And in England and Scotland, what ends up happening is people take the covenantal theory and combine it with resistance theory in such a way that they argue that you don't need the lesser magistrates. Since the government is between the king and the people, when the king violates the terms of the covenant, the people have the right to resist him. Mm -hmm. And then all of these things get united together in John Locke's uh, two treatises on government, where Locke argues that government exists, first of all, as a contract. It's a secularized version of covenant as a contract between the government and the people that the people have a certain set of unalienable rights, life, liberty, and property coming straight out of medieval theologians, although he develops different experiences for them. Um, and so the government exists to protect those unalienable rights. That's the core of the covenant. It is set up so that the government, you know, the people uh, will pay taxes, they'll obey the government, and so on. They're going to follow, the government's going to have this structure but its fundamental job is to protect the people's unalienable rights. And if the government violates that, the people have a right to rise up and overthrow the government and appoint a new government more suited to their liking, that they, that they believe will be more likely to protect their unalienable rights. If you want a good summary of this, look preamble to the Declaration of Independence. It's straight lock. <laughs> So that's resistance theory reaches its most mature form, I think, in Locke. Now, the obvious question co that comes up is, 
what do you do with Romans 13? Okay, and this is the one that we keep hearing about. We're supposed to obey the governing authorities. We're supposed to do what they tell us and so on. Well, I think the best answer to this, and this is actually going to be something I'm going to write up soon. I, you'll be, you're the first people to hear this. Oh, good. Awesome. Um, I think the best way of understanding this is to take a look at Paul's own application of it. So when Paul is arrested in Philippi, he's swagged, he's put in prison, and so on. The next day, what happens? He informs them he's a Roman citizen. They have violated his rights, and he demands, essentially, a public apology. Yep. So Paul wasn't obeying the government authorities exactly there, was he? Right. He wasn't just rolling over and letting them do what they want. When they violated his fundamental rights, he insisted on a kind of reparation. Yep. And then in Jerusalem, when he's arrested, they order him to be flogged. What does he do? He brings up the fact that he's a Roman citizen and he's got rights and they are not allowed to do that. When he is in prison and languishing in prison for years and there's a setup to do something that is unjust for him in his trial, what does he do? He appeals to his rights and appeals to Caesar. In no case in any of these is he simply rolling over and taking whatever it is that the governors are doing. So this idea that Romans 13 must mean that we have to do anything that our political leaders tell us to do, unless it's a direct violation of God's law, is belied by Paul's own actions in his own interactions with the government. Mm -hmm. So that's a wrong read of it. Sure. Because fundamentally, even in the Roman Empire, there was a higher law than the than the governing authorities. Mm-hmm. There is a Rome had its own law, it had its own constitution, and as a Paul saw no problem with insisting on protecting himself and his rights within the context of Roman law. Mm-hmm. So it would seem that the application for this is that yeah we obey the governing authorities as much as possible but we do not let them violate our fundamental rights, mm-hmm. primarily our human rights that are given by God himself, but even our civil rights. That would seem to be Paul's practice. Yeah. What does that look like, though, practically? So Paul appeals as a Roman, he appeals as a Roman citizen. He says, hey, don't do this to me. I'm a Roman citizen. We can mm-hmm. say, hey, we're Americans. Here's the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, etc. At what point do they say, mm, no, you're going to get locked up in prison if you don't do X, Y, Z, if we get to that point in our in our in in here in the West, um, like some of these other countries are getting with certain things that are happening. People are being thrown into camps or, you know, hauled off to prison or whatever. At what point? Or can we go beyond just mere words and pointing to correct things like the Constitution and say, 
now there's legitimate grounds for protecting ourselves physically. Do we have that right as Christians? Well, I would say that we're a long way from that point. Okay, first of all, uh, again, there, there should be a gradation of responses. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we always have options, um, political options like voting, like working for candidates. Uh, we've always got options like writing letters um, and lobbying. Mm-hmm. When we go beyond that, uh, we've got law courts that aren't completely hopeless. Um, you know, so we, we have the potential to appeal to the judiciary. Beyond that, we have the right to assemble for peaceful protest and redress of grievances. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, we can move to civil disobedience. And that looks like what? Martin Luther King. Okay. okay. Martin Luther King is a great example of that. Yeah. And Martin Luther King's argument was based on natural law, which integrates very nicely with everything else we've been talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, Beyond, you know, we're nowhere near, for the most part, we're nowhere near the need for civil disobedience. Sure. There may be some situations where that may be the appropriate response. Yeah. Um, But uh, I am unwilling to advocate going much beyond that. Even advocating civil disobedience, I'm basically telling people, yeah, you should get yourself put in jail. And that's a hard thing. That, that's not advice I would give lightly. Mm-hmm. My point is that there are ways that we have within the framework of American law, the, the Constitution and everything else, there are a lot of steps that we before we get to that point. And I think it's really premature to get to, to go to guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No matter what the media seems to tell us is about to take place. There seems like every day on Twitter or somewhere else that we're on the cusp of some great fallout and breakdown. Yeah. So you're and, saying, you're saying it's, 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 it, they're, they're selling headlines. These are, these right. are, yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind the Overton window and uh, repressive tolerance, you know, they're, they ignore the riots, the takeover attempt to take over federal buildings uh, the killings that go along with Antifa and riots associated with BLM, uh, like that, they completely ignore those. They don't consider those in any way a danger. Yeah. But somehow, angry white men are. <laughs> it's a conundrum. Yeah. Uh, how many times have we rioted? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Exactly. Anyway raises a whole different set of issues, but um, I know a guy who's a, uh, who spent a lot of time in law enforcement looking into groups. And what he says is that in general, and there are exceptions, but in general, the left is much better at quantity. Uh, The radical left will, will riot and they will do things like that. They'll, they'll work with quantity. What he calls the savage right goes for quality. Mm. So you get the Murrow Federal Building being blown up. Mm. Yeah. Um, And you really, you don't want either of them, but the, the, what he called, again, the savage right, they're the ones that are genuinely scary. 
Mm. But there aren't very many of them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any follow up? No, that's helpful. That's really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're coming here to a close. Just maybe some quick questions. If you could have lunch with any historical figure in the last, say, 500 years, someone that you really enjoy either reading about the most or someone that you would really like to glean more information from, ask questions to, what historical figure for you would you want to sit down with and talk to and interview? <laughs> William Carey. William Carey. Interesting. And yeah. it, specific reasons? You know, Chuck Colson used to talk about Wilberforce as his hero. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Carrie is mine. Mm. Because Carrie, for those of you who don't know, he went to India. Um, Even after his denomination didn't want to send him. He he went to India. And in the process of being in India, he basically standardized Indian languages that had to this point existed a jumble of dialects. Mm-hmm. He unified, consolidated the dialects into literary languages, developed writing systems for them, wrote grammars for them um, that really explicated what was already going on. And then he translated all or part of the Bible into 44 Indian languages. Wow. Along with this, he brought the first printing press to, uh, to uh, India Um, he brought the first steam engine to India and encouraged local blacksmiths to copy it. He started the first banking system in Asia. Um, He did important work in botany. He taught forestry um, and agriculture to improve the local economy. Uh, He worked against sati, the practice of burning widows on the funeral pyres of their husbands, trying to bring that to an end. Uh, He started one of the first colleges in Asia. Uh, He worked to abolish class distinctions among uh, Christian converts. Um, Yeah, I'm probably forgetting. Oh, yeah, he taught astronomy in India to break the hold of astrological fatalism over the... Yeah. Did I mention that his education was as a cobbler? You didn't mention that. I did know that. Have you read The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray? By chance, he talks about Ian, he talks about uh, William Carey a bit in there. And some of what you said, he gave, he gave a little bit of a synopsis, not as much as you did there with his achievements. But well, the, the thing about Carey is he's, he's an example. I mean, the, the guy's astounding. I mean, just the range of things that he did, which is what I admire. Yeah. Um, but he also got the idea of the kingdom. Yes. In the kingdom, everything that is broken is fixed. Yes. Everything that's wrong is made right. And when he landed in India, he saw a lot of things that were wrong. And so he rolled up his sleeves and went after all of them. Yeah. And did amazing things. Kind of hard not to admire a guy like that. Yeah. And is there specific questions you'd ask him or would you just want to sit down and talk to him about all that he had done? I want to know how he thinks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. And like you said, the kingdom, he, 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 he came at it with a post-millennial eschatological viewpoint that, that God is making things right here on earth, which is essentially what sent him to India, which I found 
very compelling in reading about Kerry. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's worth noting is that he and the other missionaries that went to India were what they wanted to do was to have India emerge as a modern country out of the thumb of the colonial, the British East India Company and so on, and take its rightful place in, you know, in the, the community of nations. He wasn't a tool of the colonial power frequently portrayed. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that's worth noting about him. Yeah. Do you have a book you'd recommend on him, on his life? Um, one that I got started with was by Vishal Mangalwadi, an Indian Christian, Indian philosopher. Okay, awesome. And then as far as being an historian, we'd be remiss in not asking you, what other books for you have been books that you would recommend, historical books, obviously, you know, Slaying Leviathan, you have great footnotes in here of books that you've read, but are there books that... Um, to you are essential history books that especially believers should be reading? Well, um, apart from slaying Leviathan. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the problem with that question is I'm, what's going through my head is what period are we talking about? Right. Okay. Or what subjects are we talking about? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there, yes. there are so many different, different uh, ways you could go with that. Uh, I'm actually going to pick one that's that uh, I think it's important for today, uh, it's Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Okay. Uh, I would I would strongly recommend that one. Wonderful. Awesome. Um, do you have any favorite Christmas traditions? My family immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s, and my grandparents did. They were going to be American. They, they didn't even teach their children their native language. Where do they immigrate from? Central Europe. Okay. Okay. However, what they didn't forget or leave behind were their recipes. Mm. <laughs> and um, my mother used to bake over 100 pounds of Christmas cookies every year. <laughs> wow. And some of, these, some of these recipes are amazing. Wow. Um, my personal favorite is something that's called Spitzbuben which is a German word that refers to a kind of mischievous boy, a, a scamp. Um, but what, what they are are a walnut shortbread sandwich cookie with raspberry jam in the middle. Wow. Mm, they are amazing. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. So you so, make them? Uh, no, my wife does. Okay. <laughs> got the recipes. Awesome. So. That's wonderful. <laughs> Very good. Well, Dr. Sunshine, it has been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.